Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today I'm joined by Professor Don Boudreau, a TFAS senior scholar and an economics professor at George Mason University. When Don's not teaching, he lectures internationally on topics such as the nature of law, international trade, and all aspects of political economy. He also authors pieces for outlets such as the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Times and many scholarly journals. We're going to hear more from him today about his interesting writing and his work on political economy and market economics, as well as his teaching, including for the Fund for American Studies. Don, thanks so much for taking the time from your busy schedule to chat today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. No, it's a pleasure, Roger. Well, Don, you've been uh, a longtime professor in Fund for American Studies programs. You've taught a, a range of our students, particularly a lot of our journalism students, but many others. And the course you teach is an interesting one in that we have asked you to kind of give them just a basic understanding of the important principles that everyone should know about political economy and about a market economic system. Uh, I've had the opportunity to sit in your class, and, and I love the fact that on day one, you kind of outline the 10 foundation stones of economics that everyone should know. And we particularly impress on journalism students that knowing some economics is essential to covering any kind of topic uh, what are some of those foundation stones that you think it's important for just everyday Americans to understand? I won't go through all 10, but we start with the with the most basic and the, and the first one, and that is we live in a world of inescapable scarcity. Uh, there, are sim- there are simply not enough resources, inputs, uh, tools, consumer goods, services to go around to satisfy every conceivable human desire for them. And therefore, there has to be some social process for deciding who gets what and, and, and who foregoes what and how much each person gets compared to how much other people get. Uh, and there are various ways to do this. We can do it with command and control. We can do it by tradition. Uh, the way that seems to work out best, not seems, does work out best for humanity is the market system. We allow uh, 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 people to buy and sell uh, in a system of private property rights and prices therefore emerge both for final consumer goods and for inputs. And those prices both inform and incite people to use resources in those ways that satisfy as many as possible human desires. Uh, Of course, some desires are going to be left unfulfilled, but that's just because we live in a world of scarcity. And capitalism doesn't cause scarcity. Socialism doesn't cause scarcity. Just the world we live in. So once you recognize that we live in a world of scarcity, uh, you, you get to the second uh, 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 foundation stone, and that is uh, there are in this world of ours, and I steal this quotation from Thomas Sowell, the great economist, uh, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. If you can have more of one thing that entails, and necessarily means you're going to have less of something else. It's, there's a cost. Every benefit has a cost. There's no such thing as a a, a costless benefit. Uh, and the, the trick, it's not a trick, the challenge 
is to again uh, use that system of, of of social interaction that makes those trade-offs as best as possible that that generates as many possible benefits for a, 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 as few possible costs but there's no escaping costs we just want to keep the costs to a minimum and again that's what I, that's what I in the latter part of the course I show that the at markets tend to do the fact that markets don't do it perfectly of course is a, a, a trite observation but markets do do uh, that perform that task much better than than any other if I could stop you a minute Don, yeah. that Second foundation stone about trade-offs seems to be what in some sense separates those with a collectivist mindset from those who are more liberal. And by liberal, I mean want to maximize freedom. And, and it, it somewhat separates people from their legislators, their congressmen, those in power who think there aren't – most who think there aren't trade-offs, that we can just spend money on everything as we've been seeing. And budgets go up every year. Deficits go up every year. And it's almost as if they feel there are no consequences. To, to steal another uh, point from Thomas Sowell, I don't know if I have the, the quotation exactly correct, but it goes something like this. Uh, the first rule of economics is that uh, there's no free lunch or reality is not, uh, not optional. Uh, the first rule of politics is to deny the first rule of economics. <laughs> it, it's true. You don't win office. Unfortunately, you don't win office by too seldom do you win office, political office by telling people that they can't have everything they want because you got other candidates telling people, oh, no, 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 you can have everything you want. And, and usually this is done, of course, by promising to to take resources away from mysterious rich people and oligarchs. One of, one of the foundation stones that I do mention in the list of, of 10 is that people operating in the political sector as voters, as politicians, as uh, bureaucrats, as judges – they are no different than people operating in the private sector as entrepreneurs, as consumers, um, as, as workers. The only difference, the, the, the difference is not in their personalities, it's not in their motivations, not in their intentions. The difference is in the constraints that they face. In the political sector, you, you too often get to spend other people's money. Uh, you too often get to make decisions for other people. In the private sector, you're spending your own money or money voluntarily entrusted to you. Uh, and therefore, the constraints on behavior in the private sector are much, much more tightly aligned to reality uh, than are the constraints in the public sector. And the constraints in the private sector compel you, if you compel you to uh, use resources in ways that that likely truly are going to be beneficial. The constraints in the public sector are, are, are not like that. If I can spend your money without your permission then I'm very likely to spend that money excessively and unwisely because I don't lose if I if I make a bad if I make a bad choice and if, if I get to spend your money on on dinner rather than my own money well I'm going to order the top of the line steak rather than the you know hamburger that I might otherwise order if I'm spending my own money so yeah and so in other words in the private sector you have a much more of an incentive for good stewardship of resources of scare of what you have said as foundation stone two very scarce resources if if we don't if if we don't have good institutions to to foster uh, that good stewardship then because our world is one of inescapable scarcity then resources are going to be wasted and the overall amount of prosperity available for ordinary men and women to enjoy is going to be a lot a lot less that's what happens when you when you waste resources. I, I remember something Walter Williams 
uh, often said in many of his talks to our students, uh, and no doubt in, in his lectures generally, was, I think, a quote from H.L. Mencken that an election is an advance auction on stolen goods. And uh, that touches on what you were saying, which is public choice economics, of course, developed first by your colleague, Jim Buchanan, who won a Nobel Prize, and his colleague, Gordon Tullock. Uh, mm-hmm. How is public choice is, is loomed larger in at George Mason, I know, in economics and your career. Where What's the state of public choice economics now? Has it become more mainstream among economists? Unfortunately not. Um, there was a study done just a few years ago looking at economics textbooks, introduction to economics textbooks. And very few, surprisingly few, of those textbooks, even ones written by economists who are, are you know, friendly toward markets, uh, very few of them contain uh, any, any, if any, uh, little, very few contain much, if any, public choice economics. The the attitude still seems to be that uh, the state, uh, at least democratically elected states, are, are capable of being apolitical and 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 hyper responsive to the public interest, and that's just a myth. You know, economists are very fond of pointing out that markets fail. Mar- markets, of course, can fail, uh, uh, but they somehow too many economists who are not in, uh, intimately familiar with public choice. Assume that, well, when we then turn over to the government the power to correct the failure, that the government is going to act apolitically uh, and, and with full information. Neither of those assumptions uh, is, is valid, or at least they have to be substantiated rather than just assumed. And so public choice as a research program, I think, is still thriving. Uh, as you mentioned, Jim Buchanan won the Nobel Prize in 1986 because of the role he played in founding public choice scholarship. And it's still a thriving research program. We have here at George Mason still the Center for Study of Public Choice. Uh, But I am dismayed that so few economists today are aware of it or pay much attention to it. It's it's an unfortunate fact. And it's also something of a mystery. I I think it takes a lot of the fun. Public choice, in a way, takes a lot of the fun out of being an economist, because part of the fun I think a lot of people get from being an economist is you can identify real or imaginary market failures, and you can propose your your favorite government interventions, and politicians and pundits and intellectuals listen to you. Uh, but if you know public choice, then that fun is kind of taken away, because the, what public choice says is, well, you've identified the market failure, but you've also identified a reason why government can't be relied upon to correct that market failure. So take your proposal and just, you know, uh, deep six it or put it in the circular file because it's not going to work because it takes away from economists the ability to make uh, lots of public policy recommendations. They don't like public choice. Yeah, they like to make the recommendations and then stop and assume that that's the answer. The regulations will solve the problem. In the news right now, of course, as we're recording this, is a failure of two banks, signature, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. I'm sure yeah. public choice analysis would be very interesting because we have piled on regulation after regulation after regulation, hired tens of thousands of regulators and, you know, imposed Dodd-Frank and a host of regulations on these banks. And yet yeah. we see the failure. We see regulators obviously ignoring it, and disincentives for managers and shareholders and and uh, it's classic examples of it. And, and now we'll hear people saying, oh, what we need is more regulation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and in fact, the bank failures point to 
one of the most foundational insights of public choice, and that is the political time horizon is not very long. The political time horizon extends basically to the next election. And uh, very often in life, there are things that uh, if, if there is no tomorrow, well, act in a certain way today. But given that there is a tomorrow, you have to act in a in a different way today. Uh, no, no one uses their fine dining room furniture as 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 firewood. You, you go outside and you grab you grab firewood, even though it's a little more tedious to do so. So, in the case of the bank failures, of course, we can today uh, save the unfortunate depositors of Silicon Valley Bank uh, from not getting all their money by having the government print more money or having the government borrow money in order to, to repay them. Uh, and, 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 and that looks good today. And that, that makes people grateful today. But what people miss is the, the future consequences. Most notably, this practice of bailing out these banks willy nilly, uh, creates moral hazard. Once a bank believes that government is going to bail it out, then it has less incentive to arrange its risks and monitor those risks in a prudent way. And so you get a lot less prudent bank management, financial management. And eventually, that will cause uh, greater risks and dangers to the banking, to the whole entire financial system than if there were no bailout today. But the politician today, elections next year or two years from now, well, Let's let let let's bail out the bank now. Get the kudos today, and we'll worry about the future consequences either after the next election or or after someone else is in my seat down the road. Yeah, I I, I uh, in two thousand eight, I think that was the year I found a passage from Ludwig von Mises, another great economist, uh, quoted by Israel Kurzer in an intellectual biography he wrote of Mises. And it was exactly to that point that if you bail out bankers and don't let them pay the consequences of their mistakes, then you'll have more bank failures in the future. And I sent it to the Wall Street Journal, and they ran it as their notable quotable. And I, oh, I, I think I, I remember that. I actually. thought this week of digging it out again, <laughs> sending it back to them to run again. Maybe it's something they have to run every ten years. This is one of the important reasons to to, which is what I do mostly in my career, is teach basic introductory economics. Uh, these lessons are are timeless. Uh, most of them go back to the time of Adam Smith, 250 years ago. Uh, none of them, for an economist, is very sexy. You know, they're not cutting edge research, not cutting edge ideas, but they're foundational. They're fundamental. The, in my view, the, pro- the 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 biggest source of problems in public policy uh, is not that. Most people are unaware of the latest cutting-edge research in economics or financial management. It's that most people are unaware of just the basic foundational facts of economics, such as that we live in a world of inescapable scarcity, meaning that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Um, and, and, and the fact that, that uh, the people who man public office are human beings just like the people who are CEOs and accountants and workers at private companies. Human beings don't change their stripes just because they get a nice title and because they win their office through an election. They're still flesh and blood human beings subject to all the temptations and imperfections uh, and and knowledge constraints that every human being faces and will will always face. Now, let me ask, is 
this may be one of your foundation stones, but uh, talk a little bit about the idea of comparative advantage in international trade. Uh, it seems like there has been a consensus among economists that dates back to obviously David Ricardo, probably Adam Smith, and earlier than that, that uh, trade between people, even if it goes across national borders, is very beneficial economically, that it raises living standards on both sides of the transaction and both sides of the border. Yet opposition to free trade has been rising in this country, I think, and especially among many people who call themselves conservatives. Why does why is it that comparative advantage seems to be such a difficult concept to grasp and that people continue to call for protectionist measures? It's a good question. I'm not sure of, of, of I'm not sure fully of the answer. If you talk to most Americans uh, and, 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 and you say, well, you know, is it good for people in Virginia to be able to trade freely with people in Maryland and Michigan? And of course, well, of course, you know, no, no one wants the state of Virginia or the state of Maryland or Michigan to have the power to obstruct their citizens' ability to trade with other Americans, Americans in different states. You talk to many of those same Americans and say, well, is it good for Americans to trade with people in Malaysia? Uh, and Myanmar. They said, oh, I'm not sure. It's, it's a very different. And the economist says, it's not different. Um, putting aside national security concerns, um, which are a real issue. But if we put aside national concerns, and, and the vast majority of opposition to free trade has nothing to do with national security. It, 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 it's based on the belief that somehow if we Americans trade freely with people in foreign countries, particularly with people uh, in low-wage foreign countries, that somehow we are harmed by that. Well, no one in in Manhattan, New York, thinks that he or she is harmed if they trade with someone in Mississippi, where wages are a lot lower than in Manhattan, New York. But somehow people think that if Americans trade with people in Malaysia, where wages are lower, that somehow we're harmed. Comparative advantage explains why we have no reason to believe that we're going to be harmed if we trade with people in in low-wage countries. Uh, comparative advantage, along with the insight that uh, wages are determined by worker productivity. Uh, We American workers are paid high wages not because American employers are especially magnanimous by world standards. We American workers are paid high wages because we American workers are very productive. We're productive because we have a lot of training. We're productive mostly because we have a lot of tools, capital goods, inputs, uh, good infrastructure, uh, a good legal system. To work with that makes each worker productive, and, and so employers, in order to get the employees they need, they ha- they have to bid wages up. So when we trade with workers in low wage countries, um, those workers get paid low wages not because their employers are mean or because those workers are being exploited. They get paid low wages because they're not very productive. They're not very productive because they don't have a lot of capital goods to work with, uh, and so. If if people say, "Well, should we be afraid? Should should high wage Americans be afraid to trade with hot with with low wage workers?" Most people go, "Oh, yeah, that's going to be a problem." But if you say, "Should high productivity American workers be afraid to trade with low productivity foreign workers?" People say, "Well, no, because why would you be afraid of a low productivity worker uh, to trade to trade with?" But low productivity worker is just another way of saying low wage worker. and, and uh, but now back to comparative advantage. What comparative advantage shows is that even though some workers get paid lower wages and, and because they are of lower productivity, that doesn't mean we can't gain by by by, by trading with them. And so, comparative advantage basically says if someone can do something 
some task at a lower cost than you can do it in terms of what you would forego to do it, then it's better for you to rely upon that other person to do that task and for you to spend time doing what you do best, best, <laughs> and then trading with that person to do that task. And, and you know, and, and one of the great insights of economics, and, and I, I, even though I've studied economics for 45 years, going on 50 years, actually, since I was an undergraduate, uh, is just the beauty of trade. And if you look around, you look around at what you consume every day as an ordinary American, the food you eat, the automobiles you drive, the, 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 the consumer electronics, the, the, the housing and offices that you use. None of us creates these things personally. Each of us every day benefits from the knowledge and creativity and innovation and, and effort of literally hundreds of millions of people from around the world. All you do is serve as president of TFAS. All I do is teach basic economics. And yet you and I are able to enjoy all these things that we couldn't possibly produce. And that's true for everyone in the world. Trade is, specialization in trade is a process that allows each of us to convert that which we do best. What I do best is teach economics. What you do best is serve as president of TFAS. And we, we, we do that, we get paid income, and then we can convert the value of what we do best into whatever we want, into the food for our, food for our tables, furniture for our homes, consumer electronics, medical care, uh, 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 electricity, communi instant communications. It's an amazing system. And it, 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 it baffles me that so many people fail to understand and appreciate just how fortunate they are to live in 2023 in a, a, a modern economy. This is not to say that things are perfect. They're not perfect, but per perfection is a ridiculous standard. They'll never be perfect. But my gosh, they work in incredibly well. You flip the switch, the lights go on. You, you press the button, the toilet flushes. You, you get in your car and it moves. You need fuel, the service station is open and it has gasoline. To sell, you feel pain. You go to the doctor, and you get a you get medicines to usually make it go away and cure you. We live in a, a remarkable world of human cooperation, and to focus on the the relatively few and insignificant imperfections, I think, is to to miss the point. It's not to, again, it's not to deny the imperfections. Some of these are, are worse than others. Some of these are more obviously avoidable than others, such as bank runs <laughs> that are made more likely by government policy that encourages moral hazard. But but just overall, we more. T I wish more people would would spend time reflecting on what a remarkable world we live in. How fortunate we are to live in this world that works so remarkably well. So comparative advantage would persuade us that I shouldn't, I should continue to hire you to teach economics rather than go into the classroom myself and teach economics to our students. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and here's one of the remarkable sites of comparative advantage. It, it may be that you are by far a better economic professor than I am, but, but if you are an even better, administrator of TFAS than I would be, then yeah, you should put me in the classroom and you should keep doing what you're doing. It works out well for both of us and and for our students and for and for TFAS employees and TFAS donors.
Well, one one of the concerns people have with free trade is that it's hollowed out our manufacturing sector in some way. And of course, if you look at manufacturing output, as I've learned to do, thanks to you and your work, uh, while it kind of leveled off and maybe dipped a little during COVID's lockdowns, uh, we continue to manufacture far more in val- the value of manufacturing output than any country in the world. And it continues to grow every year. And uh, yet we're doing it with fewer people, which is a good thing, I think, because as you said, people are, our workers are more productive. They use machines and uh, now AI, I guess, and things like that. So should we be concerned that we have fewer people in manufacturing and fewer jobs in manufacturing? No, no more than we should be concerned that we have fewer people in agriculture. When the Declaration of Independence and the Wealth of Nations were written in 1776, between uh, eight and nine Americans worked in agriculture, uh, out of eight and nine out of 10 Americans worked in agriculture. If we still had the same agricultural technology today as we had then, we would require eight of 10 Americans to work in agriculture. You and I wouldn't be doing what we're doing. We'd probably, if we'd be alive at all, we'd be slaving away on a farm, toiling away on a farm. Uh, today, only about 1% of American workers, maybe it's slightly higher, but 1.5% of Americans work in agriculture. The same thing has been happening in manufacturing uh, over the past 50 years. It's becoming ever more automated. Uh, so, so as you point out, manufacturing output in the United States is near an all-time high today. It hit an all-time high just before the Great Recession, as in all recessions, it dipped. Uh, then it's been, uh, it leveled off a little bit in the 20-teens. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And then it's going back up again. Of course, it fell during COVID. It's going back up then again. Pretty soon, it'll be at an all-time high again, I'm sure. Industrial capacity in the U.S. is at an all-time high, the, the the measure of what we are capable of producing. So th- there are several fallacies that, that are repeated so frequently uh, that they are just taken as a matter of course as being true, and they're simply false. So it, it It's not true that we don't make things anymore. We make a lot of things. We're just making with a lot fewer workers. It's not true that we don't export anymore. We we, we export a lot. It's not true that our manufacturing or industrial sector has been hollowed out. Industrial capacity is at an all-time high. Uh, What what is true uh, is that we Americans don't make... uh, uh, and I'm putting making a quotation mark, and I want to explain that in a moment. We don't make final consumer goods anymore. What we make are the inputs to consumer goods. We make the intellectual property. We make the ideas for the processes. We make a lot of the tools. We make a lot of the machines. We make a lot of the advanced equipment that is very often exported to foreign countries on which uh, uh, in which these the final consumer goods are made. If you go into Target today and you buy, say, a a, 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 some, some bathroom towels. Uh, they might say made in Turkey or made in Malaysia. Uh, you have no idea. Well, all that means, all that means is that final assembly occurred in that country. You have no idea where the cotton came from. It very well could have come from Texas. You have no idea where the advanced loom came from. That could have been made in Italy with, with, with American-made parts. Um, as Dan Eikenson, who used to work as a trade analyst at Cato, put it a number of years ago. And this is a beautiful point, and it's absolutely true. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes today's globalization from the globalization that was that hit its peak just prior to World War I is that today these made-in labels, made in America, made in Turkey, made in Guatemala, they don't mean anything. Uh, 
the, the, the proper label, as Eikenson points out, is made on Earth. Uh, we have such a complex system of global supply chains today that uh, uh, almost everything that's made, manufactured, contains ideas, contains inputs, contains supplies, contains, contains processes from all over the world. Yeah, I, I remember seeing, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, they had a piece about the iPhone and where all of its parts come from. And, you know, they're sourced all over the world, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, probably China, elsewhere, and it's all assembled and put together. And But, when, but the value of all that uh, is much less than what, of course, they sell the phone for. Because what's not taken into account in the production of the iPhone is the, the the Apple stores that sell them, the cost of labor of those employees, the transportation of the phone, the profit and advertising and all the other costs that go in that are covered in the sale of an iPhone. And very little of the final $1,000 you pay for an iPhone or $800, whatever, is going to someone in China. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the iPhone ultimately is a product of of the mind of Steve Jobs and the, and the brilliant people that he surrounded himself with. Uh, and, 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 and precisely because uh, lower wage workers were available to help build these things that made the value of Steve Jobs's idea greater. It, 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 it very well may have incited him to come up with that idea. If, if, if you can't bring your idea to fruition to make it profitable, uh, then you have less incentive to come up with, 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 with good ideas. One of the benefits of having uh, 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 low-wage workers today in other countries is that, for, for Americans, is that they actually inspire Americans, American entrepreneurs, to come up with ideas more than they otherwise would that can then be put into practice to, 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 to buy uh, these lower-cost uh, means of production abroad. A number of years ago, probably 2010, I did a video for Reason, for Reason, Nick Gillespie uh, helped put it together. And we looked at the, 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 the value of the different component parts in a Jeep Cherokee and I think a Toyota Camry, like a, like a Toyota car and a, a Jeep car. And, and, and the Jeep's final assembly was here in America. The Toyota's final assembly was in Japan. But if you looked at the actual value of the components, the Toyota Camry was more of an American car than the Jeep Cherokee was. Well, one more thing about trade, and then I uh, we're getting close to running out of time, so I want to touch on a few other things. But we passed over the national security concern, and I, I thought I'd at least bring that up because there are a lot of people worried about China and the potential of China threatening its region or even threatening the United States as it grows in in uh, power. Uh, how how would you respond to those concerns about national security? Do you put some limits on trade if it's items that may help them in from a military standpoint, or do you continue to pursue a policy that since we're both mutually benefiting from that trade, that uh, it's not to China's advantage to trade with us? So I, I don't think the I don't think it can be ruled out that there would be some trade restrictions that would be worthwhile under a under the national security exception. Um, it's, it's, it, it, in every case, it's a matter of, of detail. And we just have to hope that we have sensible people in, in office who will make, who will make those decisions wisely. The problem with the net, well, a problem with the national security exception is once you admit it, 
then every producer wants to claim that it's producing something that's vital for the national interest. And it's and public choice economics says it's 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 uh, uh, tempting for politicians to say, yes, yes, you're 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 vital for the national interest. So you have, you have to be aware of that problem. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I recall in the 1980s, the necktie industry testified before Congress that they needed protection from international competition because neckties were part of the military uniforms of, of many uh, officers. Yeah, we could, we can't have our officers having a necktie shortage. That would definitely. Uh, but but there are a couple of other other so, so so yes, I admit a national security exception. But but keeping in mind some exceptions to the exceptions are also important, such as the one you and I just mentioned. But but also there there is this. Once you, I'll just mention two in the interest of time. Once you protect an industry from competition for whatever reason, uh, you very likely make that industry less innovative, both in terms of keeping its costs down and keeping its uh, its output as as modern as possible. So if we protect the U.S. steel industry, for example, from competition on the basis of national security, which may be a wise thing to do, but recognize that the cost of that is that, well, now U.S. steel producers, they have less incentive to keep their costs down. They have less incentive to devise new and, and, and improved products, which could wind up hurting our national security in the future. A second consideration to keep in mind is that, uh, uh, and we have a lot of empirical evidence on this, what I'm about to mention, the more countries trade with each other, the less likely they are to go to war with each other. Uh, as, as my friend, Tom, or your friend too, Tom Palmer once, once said, I heard him say, it's just bad business to kill your suppliers and to kill your customers. And so if we reduce our trade with China, and and maybe prudence dictates we do so, one downside of that is that it actually increases the likelihood of belligerence between the two countries. Uh, And so how how to make that trade-off is a very difficult, uh, 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 practical uh, challenge. Uh, But because increased trade does reduce the chances of belligerency, recognizing that when we re- when we reduce trade, for whatever reason, one of the costs of that, one of the downsides of that, is that we increase the likelihood of a hot shooting war. Well, uh, Don, I want to ask you on two more topics. One is uh, your book, The Essential Hayek, published by the Fraser Institute, our friends at the Fraser Institute, I believe. Uh, yep. Hayek's very important to you uh, as an economist. Uh, you have a blog called Cafe Hayek, which I recommend to everyone listening that they go to Cafe Hayek. Uh, every day you put new, I think just about every day you have new content there. It could be uh, good insights, quotations. As also you have responses to economic illiteracy that you find in the daily papers or you hear from correspondents. Uh, so it's a great site. But could you just say for a minute why Hayek is important? So Hayek uh, was an Austrian economist, born in 1899, died in 1992. Uh, he won the Nobel, shared the Nobel Prize in 1974. He was a big deal. Uh, I fortunately was introduced to his work when I was an undergraduate. Uh, and it's it's difficult to summarize all that Hayek means to me. But Hayek taught me the reality of the enormous complexity of of the modern economy and he counseled humility in our attempts to 
understand that complexity in any detail. So as an economist, I can understand general principles, supply and demand, comparative advantage, uh, which are important to understand. But I'm just an economist sitting in my office in Fairfax, Virginia. I have no idea how to how to run a shoestring making factory or a steel making factory. And it'd be highly presumptuous of me to suppose that if I look at some data, some statistics, or do some theorizing with my with my uh, 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 pen and, and ink or, or on the computer, that I somehow can gain sufficient knowledge about the way the economy works to recommend that government intervene into the economy. Hayek had a very sophisticated appreciation of the limits of individual human knowledge in addressing economic issues. And, he, and, and that's complemented by Hayek's most famous academic article, his 1945 article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, where he showed how the market price system uh, 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 allows each of us to share the knowledge of millions of others by prices rising or falling, depending upon supply and demand. So Hayek Hayek, basically Hayek taught, taught me humility. And I, I, and, and, you know, I encountered Hayek's work as an 18 or 19 year old first. And it's, it's really good if you're 18 or 19 years old to, to, to learn the importance of humility. Well, our, our students at TFAS classes are fortunate to have you as one of their professors during the summer. Uh, hopefully you're teaching them as well to have humility. I think you are through the work you do in teaching economics to avoid having hubris, to think they can, that uh, an economy can be centrally planned from the, the top down. Uh, could you comment a little on your experience with us teaching our students? What's well, great. As you said at the beginning, most of the students I teach are, are journalism students. They have aspirations to be to be journalists. And I don't, I don't believe there is a group of students that is even as important for uh, a, a good, and I do fancy myself at least a good principles of economics teacher to, 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 to get in front of because too, far too much journalism today uh, is, it may be good journalism, but it's lousy economics. Uh, and so I've, I've really enjoyed talking to the students, te teaching the students um, I've had more than one, and it's not me, it's just economics. Economics, when done well, is naturally interesting and exciting and, and eye-opening. Uh, uh, and I'll, I just try to convey that. And I've had more than one student over the past, I think I first taught for you guys, Roger, in 2010. Uh, so this is going on, I think now my 14th, my 14th summer that I'll teach for you. I've had, I don't know how many, but, but, uh, uh, several students each each year uh, tell me either by email or, or personally, "Wow, you know, I, I've never thought of that. I I didn't see the, I didn't I didn't see this until you you showed it." And again, it's not me. I'm just do, doing what any respectable principles of of economics teacher would do. Uh, but it's gratifying. It's gratifying to 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 know that a young person who otherwise might never have been introduced to the fact that we live in a world of inescapable scarcity or that public choice is a thing, that people in the public sector are no different than people in the private sector. Uh, it's gratifying to see young people's eyes opened to these very simple, but incredibly important and too often overlooked realities. 
Um, and uh, we're not going to get to everyone. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, not every student goes through through TFAS, and not all the ones who do go through TFAS absorb it as well as as the others. But we're getting to more than otherwise, and and we just have to take we have to be be grateful that we can we can do that, and 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 believe, and I do believe that it, it makes the world a better place than it would otherwise be. Well, what I, I really appreciate is what economist Paul Haynes said, who has been an inspiration to our high school division at the foundation for teaching economics, but he, he wrote somewhere that you should teach introduction to economics, not as if it's the first course someone will take on their way to go PhD in the field, but like it's the last course they may ever take in economics. And that's how you approach it in the courses you teach for our students. That's how so many of our faculty approach it, where they're giving this bedrock understanding of, of these foundation stones of economics. And one of our graduates is David Muir, who's the anchor of ABC Evening News. And he, did a, he reflected back in 2017 at our 50th anniversary about the impact of TFAS programs on him. And it was said it was the economics course he took there that was so important to him because very few journalists have any economics or any economic understanding. So it is very valuable. Yeah. And, 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 and way too many um, economics courses in, in college are taught by, uh, unfortunately, by economists who don't get it. They're, ta- they're taught by economists who, who fancy themselves as teaching uh, these students as if it's the first course they're going to take on their way to a PhD. I, I teach it, as you said, I teach it as the, as if it's the only course they're going to take. And my attitude is, uh, um, uh, I think of myself as an, an, an inoculant. Uh, I'm there to inoculate them against some of the worst fallacies that might otherwise uh, uh, cause them intellectual brain damage. And if I can, if my inoculations work, uh, then I'm doing my job. We probably need a program that offers boosters every few years for them. But uh, since you mentioned inoculation, I'm going to have to say we didn't have time to talk about COVID. Uh, you've written a lot on that. Uh, that's been very good. We didn't have a t- time to dig any deeper into the works of Hayek, which I've liked to have done. And, and uh, about the time this is being released, we will have held a wonderful program for our late dear friend, Walter Williams, who was a colleague of yours at George Mason and uh, lectured regularly in our programs. But we'll leave that for perhaps a follow-up podcast in the future. Uh, we've run, like run out of time, but thank you very much, Don. Don Boudreaux is my guest today. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and thank you for all the common sense you've offered us today about economics and the economic way of thinking. Well, thank you, Roger, and thank you and your colleagues at TFAS for what you do and continue to do. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfast.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reen. And until next time, show courage in things large and small.